Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I explore one or more bird species in deep, deep detail. I do all the research on their behaviors, feeding, mating, evolution, all these crazy facts. I sift through all the research papers, so all you have to do is just sit back and learn. Today's episode is about the American bittern and the least bittern, called Bittern Pill to Swallow. Before I start, though, a shout-out to Kayla Lindquist for the idea for this episode and also for the cover art image. She caught a male least bittern doing the split between two reeds, and it just looks incredible. Check out the cover art. Also check out Dirty Bird Podcast social media. Um, check out the um, show notes, uh, the description for this episode, and you'll find a link to Kayla Lindquist's website where she has some amazing photography. Thank you so much, Kayla. And for everyone else out there listening, just like Kayla did, let me know what birds you want to hear about, and I'll do an episode on them. Uh, I was looking at my podcast stats, and there's some people listening in Russia, apparently. Hmm. I'm really interested to hear from you folks. Uh, what kind of birds are y'all seeing in Mother Russia? One more thing before I start. Please, please, if you like the podcast, tell someone about it, share it on social media, um, or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts also apparently recently updated their app. It makes it super hard to find new episodes of a podcast unless you're subscribed. Um, so please make sure you subscribe to Dirty Bird Podcast to get the latest episodes. Thanks to Chelsea, who recently left a great review. I'll be reading Chelsea's review at the end of this show. Um, and remember, y'all, if you leave a review or spread the word of the podcast in some way, contact me and I'll send you some free stickers. I lied. I have one more thing before we begin. I want to play um, a sound of some birds that Ricky sent me from Brazil. So those are some Brazilian birds. I can't tell you the species. I'm not good uh, when it comes to south of the equator birds, but uh, they sound pretty cool. I think I heard a dog bird barking in there, too. Yeah. Um, if anyone else has some cool recordings of birds or really anything, just let me know. Shoot me an email, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com. All right, that's enough. Let's start talking about today's birds. So the word bittern. I mean, this is a weird word. Like, everyone knows heron, everyone knows egret, but what the hell is a bittern? 
So bittern actually refers to a group of short-necked herons. The origin of the name bittern goes way back to the early Roman Empire. Pliny the Elder in his book Natural History writes that the Middle English name for the bittern, Botor, comes from combining two Latin words, bos for ox and torus for bull, in reference to the bittern's booming call. Combining these two words into botorus also gives us the genus name for the American bittern. And it's not a far jump from botor and botorus to turn it into bittern. Bitterns also have many nicknames, especially here in America where the American bittern has been called Stake driver, thunder pumper, bog bumper, water belcher, and mire drum. I feel like these are like names for uh, monster trucks or something. Monday, Monday, see thunder pumper. <laughs> oh man, when I record alone, I get really weird. Definitely, water belcher. That'd be a good monster truck name too, I guess. <laughs> but all these nicknames actually refer to its very unique and liquid call. I mean, that call is nuts. Um, it sounds to me like the sound effect from a cartoon, you know, like when someone slips on a banana peel. John James Audubon also notes some bitter nicknames, too. Um, he notes that the least bitter is called Butor by the Creoles of Louisiana. I did some digging on this, so some etymological research on this word, and it can actually be traced back to the island of Jersey off Normandy in France, uh, where it refers to a stupid person. John James Audubon states that the Creoles called the least bittern stupid because it could be easily snuck up on if it was caught napping in the middle of the day. So, yeah, I guess uh, people from the island of Jersey, some French people came over and you know, settled in Louisiana and New Orleans and brought that word with them where it applied to a bird that they used to <laughs> like to sneak up on when it was sleeping and throw it in some gumbo. The least bittern wasn't the only one caught napping, though. The American bittern also was noted for its tendency to nap and earned the nickname Garde Soleil due to its habit of napping on one leg with its head tucked in one eye peeking out, seeming to stare at the sun. Another unflattering nickname for the American bittern is Shitepoke. I actually talked about this um, a couple episodes back about Shitepoke. Um, it's a nickname given to a couple heron species that have the tendency to defecate or shite when they're disturbed. Love that word, shite. So just some general information on bitterns. While there are 14 species of bitterns worldwide, only two are found in North America. The yellow bittern, a resident of Asia, does rarely turn up as a vagrant in Alaska, so you can possibly add that to your North American bird list, you know, if it blows over in a storm or something. Our two bitterns here in North America are the aptly named American bittern and the least bittern. The American bittern's scientific name is Botaurus lentiginosus. The genus name Botaurus, I already described earlier, remember, boss for ox and then taurus for bull. Um, lentiginosus is Latin for freckled and refers to the coloration of the bird, which I'll talk about in just a second. The least bitter in scientific name is Ixobrichus exilus. The genus Ixobrichus comes from combining two ancient Greek words, Ixia, referring to a reed-like plant, and Brunchomai, 
meaning to bellow. So it's still playing off of that whole uh, bowl-like sound um, that bitterns are known to make. The species name, Exilus, is Latin for small, slender, or thin. This Latin name seems to make sense because bitterns, while in the heron family, are generally much smaller than their large-bodied cousins like the great blue heron or the egrets. The American bittern is on the larger size for a bittern. It's a little smaller than a Canada goose, but it has a lot of chunk to it. Uh, while it has that graceful heron body shape, it is much more compact when compared to something like, you know, kind of a stringy great blue heron. The neck is much thicker. The legs are much shorter. It also is usually seen in a hunch posture with its neck tucked into its body. Its coloration is pretty bland, but perfect for blending in with muddy banks and marsh grasses. The American bittern's coat is full of brown, buff, and white. The brown streaking on its chest and neck are especially noticeable, and this is where that Latin name uh, for freckled, lentiginosus, comes from. When in flight, the American bittern has much darker outer wings, which help contrast with the rest of the bird and aid in its identification. The least bittern, despite its name, is a great-looking bird. The least in its name refers to how tiny this bird is. Um, it's only a little bit bigger than a robin. Uh, and most of that body is actually taken up by legs. They have these brown to bright yellow long legs with freakishly long toes. Remember that fact. Those long toes will come in handy later on. Their bill is also yellow, uh, a contrast to the American bittern, who has a pretty dull brown bill. Their feathers are also much more appealing, in my opinion, than that of the American bittern. The males especially are very handsome, with a dark blue-gray coat on top of its head and body, and soft brown on the sides. Their underside is similar to that of the American bittern, white with brown streaks. The wings of the male least bittern look especially cool from the top while in flight. The dark blue primary feathers contrast really nicely with the gray and brown of its other wing feathers. And while females lack the dark blue on top, they instead sport a rich cinnamon coat. Both males and females have two very dapper white streaking lines that separate the darker coloration on the top of their bodies from the lighter coloring on their sides. Finally, one of my favorite things about the way these birds look is their tendency to raise their crown of feathers, giving them a spiky hairdo that just adds to their personality. Now note that not all least bitterns look like this. There's a very rare, debatable color morph called Cory's least bittern. Um, I'm going to save that till the end, though, because that's kind of only a real bird nerd fact. Uh, but yes, yeah, stick around if you want to hear about Cory's least bittern and possibly see one and get minorly famous in the bird world. The flight of the least heron, especially when disturbed, is pretty comical. The American bittern is known to do this too. Kind of, if you, when they're flying, like, you know, they intend to, they tuck their neck, they tuck their legs, you know, they look, they look pretty graceful. But if you surprise them, they will just fly off with their neck extended and their legs just dangling. They might appear pretty awkward in flight, but these are actually pretty strong flyers. Um, I'll talk about their annual migrations, which sometimes are thousands of miles. You'll find these birds in freshwater or brackish marshes with tall vegetation. The least bittern is a specialist for dense vegetation with deep water, 
While the American bittern is more typical of other heron species, it likes some vegetation, but not too much. It likes water that's shallow enough for it to wade in, and it can wade through and pick out fish. While the least bittern prefers dense, tall vegetation that's growing up in deep water. As many wetlands have been destroyed and drained throughout America, these industrious birds have also adopted new habitats. During the non-breeding season especially, they can be found around golf course ponds, sewage treatment plants. Also, managed wetlands are an important refuge for these birds. So now I'll talk a bit about their range and migration before I go into some cool behavior facts and their feeding and breeding. As far as the range of these birds goes, the American bittern is the more northern species, while the least bittern prefers warmer climates. However, their ranges do overlap considerably, especially in the southeastern U.S. These birds are strongly migratory and move from southern wintering grounds to northern breeding grounds each year. There are some areas where they will remain year-round, though. Um, for the American bittern, you may find them year-round along the coast of California and Oregon, and also around the Chesapeake Bay of Virginia and Maryland. Also, a quick disclaimer, I'll do my best to describe the bird's range here, but since they are long-distance migrants, um, and there's no hard and fast territory lines for where they decide to breed. Um, there's lots of accounts of like some of them popping up in certain areas and breeding, you know, for a bit. Like basically, you know, it depends on the climate. It depends on the availability of wetlands. So I'm just going to outline some general trends um, about where they summer and winter. The least bittern prefers only hanging out year-round in very warm places such as southern Florida, the American Southwest, central Mexico, and the Caribbean islands. And then there's actually a couple subspecies of the least bittern that hang out year-round south of the equator in countries of South America like Peru, Colombia, and Brazil. For the most part though, both the American and least bittern like to change their scenery up each fall and spring. Similar to songbirds, they migrate at night, and they likely use river systems to guide their journey. Radio tracking of migratory birds show that they have a very good idea of where they are headed. They basically move in a straight line from the pond in the prairies where they raise their young to somewhere like the Florida Everglades. Uh, just to help kind of picture their breeding and, and migration range, just picture a map of the U.S. and Canada and draw a line straight across, stretching all the way from Washington, D.C., through Nevada, and all the way to Northern California. This is basically the farthest south that American bitterns like to breed. Their breeding territory then stretches up north, far into Canada, all the way to Great Slave Lake. In the fall, though, American bitterns fly south and spend Christmas in the southeastern U.S., southwest U.S., and spread all across Mexico and the Caribbean islands. Radio tracking studies have shown that the Everglades and the bayous of Louisiana are wintering hotspots for American bitterns. Furthermore, these studies show that American bitterns show high fidelity to their summer and wintering spots, coming back year after year. Maybe just keep that in mind every time you see like a wetland being destroyed for development of a pond or drained to pave a parking lot. That may be like an American bittern summer home and, and, you know, it'll come back next year and be like, what the hell? The least bittern spreads across much of the eastern U.S. during summer to breed. It even pokes its head into southern Canada. However, it doesn't like high elevations and seems to avoid the Appalachian Mountains. While it pops up a little bit in the western U.S., it's not as widespread. Come wintertime, least bitterns might head down to Baja, California, southern Florida, the Caribbean, 
or down to Mexico, Central America, and even northern Colombia. That sounds like a nice winner. I'm going to go with the least bitterns. American and least bitterns sometimes get blown off course, though, during their migrations. The least bittern has been known to show up in Iceland and on the Azores Islands. The American bittern is a rare vagrant to Europe. In fact, the first scientifically described American bittern didn't come from one collected in the Americas, but rather it was an unfortunate vagrant who had blown across the pond and ended up in Dorset, England. Um, quick side note here also, something is up with Dorset, England. Like, it is a some kind of Bermuda Triangle for vagrant bitterns, because there's actually a sighting of a yellow bittern recorded from 1962 in Dorset, I mentioned the yellow bittern at the top of this show. It's native to Asia, but sometimes turns up in Alaska. So how the hell did it end up in England? The thing is, it probably didn't. The sighting was most likely the result of an overeager twitcher. Um, that's like people, a term for people who are super into, you know, going and seeing uh, birds that, uh, rare birds that turned up. Um, and the British Ornithologist Union thinks that it's all tosh um, and they don't recognize the sighting. I only brought up this tangent because it exemplifies how crazy the birding world is. For some people, it's just like a casual hobby. For others, a scientific profession. And then you got people that are real competitive about it. And the even crazier thing is birding is pretty much all just based on the honor system. So, yeah, no, I totally saw a dodo in Virginia. Alright, so let's get back to our bitterns and talk about bittern behavior. One unique behavior that makes these birds really cool is their habit of looking straight up when threatened to try to look like marsh reeds around them. I've seen some amazing descriptions of this, like people will be out, you know, just like looking at birds or just looking at the scenery in general. And they're kind of like, oh, that's a weird looking reed. Um, you know, maybe it's something. And they'll notice that, oh, no, it's a bittern just staring straight up in the sky, bill pointed towards the sky, trying to look like a reed. <laughs> it kind of makes me think like, you know, little kids when they play hide and go seek and they'll just like do the stupidest hiding places, like trying to act like a lamp or something. Um, but these guys are committed because even if the wind blows, they will sway their bodies back and forth and sink with the reeds around them to really blend in. This behavior was definitely noticed by Native Americans um, who reference it in their names for these bitterns. Both the Pawnee name and Ojibwe name for the American bittern translates to bird that looks up at the sun. This behavior also seems to be hardwired for bitterns because um, it's not learned. Um, you see even young on the nest will strike this pose if they're disturbed. When it comes to feeding, least bitterns have a very unique feeding strategy. Their bodies are so small and light that marsh reeds and grasses are actually able to support their weight. As Kayla beautifully illustrated in her photo, they will grab onto reeds and grasses and then plunge their extendable neck down into the water to catch fish. This allows them to feed in areas that may be too dense for other herons to easily access, or the water may be too deep um, for even big herons like the Great Blue to wade in. So it's a cool little niche that they've carved out for themselves. They're specialists at just clinging to these reeds like little marsh gymnasts, and they treat the reeds like they are vertical monkey bars to expertly traverse above the swampy waters, nabbing a fish that is swimming below them. 
if you're a frog, this thing has to be your worst fucking nightmare. I mean, you know, maybe something scares you from the shore, you jump in the water, you swim out to some reeds thinking you're safe from the fish and the predators on land, and then this thing comes swinging through the reeds and just pecks you from above. And frogs are a big part of their diet. Uh, bitterns seem to love eating frogs. Um, in addition to that, um, they also eat fish, as I mentioned, also leeches, snails, beetles. They're pretty omnivorous. And to show you just what specialists these guys are for thick, dense brush, least bitterns have a unique ability to compress their body tight and squeeze between even the densest marsh growth. In almost a weird inverted version of limbo um, john james audubon actually tested this out um, tested how thin can they go um, he had some least bitterns and he stacked books and then saw how narrow he could make it between the books um, and still have the bittern walk between it he gradually reduced the space between until the books were no more than an inch apart and the least bittern was still able to squeeze through I found another cool feeding strategy of the least bittern. Um, this one was reported from Bass Lake in Michigan, where an observer noticed a least bittern male and female spreading their wings over the water and then stabbing their beaks down into the shadow that their wings made. This feeding strategy of using shade to attract prey is called canopy feeding, and it has been observed in other birds too, such as the black heron in Africa. I really like the description of this guy that they give, um, a, a certain George Sutton of Ithaca, New York. Um, he gives the feeding of the least bittern and describes it as cat-like hunters who peer intently at their prey and flick their tails side to side, similar to how you see a house cat curl and lash its tail. So I do really like that description, like these birds are almost cat-like as they anticipate pouncing on some fish. One more strange thing about the feeding of least bitterns, I found an account from 1876 in Belmont, Massachusetts, where the stomach of a shot male least bittern was found to be crammed with nothing but cotton wool. I don't know why it was eating cotton wool, but it did, and then it got shot. So not a good day for that least bittern. The feeding strategy of the American bittern is similar to that of a mini great blue heron. They are often observed wading slowly through the water, searching for food, or standing motionless waiting for a prey item to swim by. And they are pretty opportunistic hunters. They'll eat almost anything that will fit down their bill. Small fish, aquatic invertebrates, crustaceans, and frogs make up a big part of their diet. Bigger vertebrates like lizards, eels, and mice have also been found in their stomach contents. Similar to the great blue heron, when the American bittern captures a particularly large or feisty critter, it will bash it against a log to weaken it before swallowing it whole. A lot of these foods contain a lot of bones and shells, and American bitterns will actually regurgitate pellets back up of indigestible material, similar to the way owls and falcons do. I did find a study that measured the gastric pH of American bitterns. Um, it found it had a pH of around 1.65 to 1.86, which is actually lower, meaning more acidic, than that of owls and falcons. The paper didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, I don't know what to make of it, but they got some pretty strong acid there. I found an account from Harney County, Oregon, where an American bittern was found in a state of distress with a garter snake coiled around its leg and biting its neck. 
Now, there's no way a garter snake was trying to eat an American bittern, um, but what probably happened is the American bittern was a bit too ambitious and attacked this large garter snake, who found the attempt at being eaten very obnoxious and proceeded to attack the American bittern back. Don't worry, both animals were pried apart, although the American bittern appeared very exhausted and shaken up by the whole affair. Next time, don't try to eat such a large freaking snake. Stick to some fish. Now let's listen to some bittern sounds. Um, as you've already heard, the American bittern in particular has some distinctive and impressive sounds. The male gives a classic three-syllable song to attract mates and defend territory that has been described by many writers over the years. As I mentioned at the opener, it's been compared to everything from a rusty water pump to a stake being hammered into a bog. In fact, it's so reminiscent of a water pump that when a male American bittern is singing, he's said to be pumping. How it makes this incredible sound is a bit of a mystery, but certainly involves considerable effort on the bittern's part. The male bittern throws his head forward in a jerk while opening and closing the bill. He produces a couple initial soft plunking sounds first before finally giving the full three-part song. See if you can pick them out in this recording. The motion actually looks kind of painful and it's described as resembling a patient with uncontrollable nausea. While pumping, the neck can be observed puffing up with air like a bullfrog. The American bittern's anatomy lends a few hints to how he produces this song. When breeding season approaches, male bitterns' bodies change too. The skin around their throat becomes thickened with muscles and gelatinous tissue, and the blood supply increases. They also have special tissue at the back of their mouths that thickens. This tissue acts like a cork stopper to keep air from escaping from their mouth or nostrils while their esophagus dilates with retained air, and all that extra muscles and gelatinous tissue and blood supply that arrive there kind of helps with this dilation. Where the air comes from, though, is a bit of a debate. Some people think that while the American bitter is doing kind of all that Bill's gulping, he's basically like sucking air down. Um, that's a little hard to believe, though. Um, others think that he's actually blowing against his closed bill to force air from its trachea into its esophagus. I mean, when you think about it, the American Bitterns are basically burping to sing their songs. And American bitterns will also make several harsh calls, especially when disturbed. The least bittern song is much more subdued. The male gives a soft cooing call from a concealed location in order to attract its mates. Lease bitterns make a wide variety of sounds too, like contact calls between mates. 
and alarm calls. So those were some amazing calls, but let's get down to the dirty business. Let's talk about bittern breeding. And we'll start with the American bittern because it has a pretty unique copulation display. I found a great account by Paul Johnsgard who observed a pair of American bitterns mating on Christian Pond in Grand Tetons National Park. Grand Tetons has a special place in my heart. Um, it's where I proposed to my now wife. So I'm not surprised that the American Bitterns were getting it on at this very romantic location. Now everyone knows before a hot date, you got to wear your best clothes, and it's no different with the American Bittern. Each spring, male Bitterns develop special white, downy feathers adjacent to each of their shoulders. Normally, these are hidden, but if he's fighting with another male or trying to woo a lady... He will unfurl and expose these splendid snow-white feathers. Um, I'll see accounts uh, of people in marshes. You know, everything's kind of just like dull brown and everything. And they'll just see this perfectly white patch moving through the marsh. And it's almost like disorienting. You're like, because the, you know, the male American bittern, he's not very colorful either. He kind of blends in with the dead marsh grass. And then you just see this perfectly white um, feather. It's, it looks like a cloud moving across the marsh. Um, and obviously this is very attractive to a female if you're an American bittern. He will also raise white feathers on his neck that stick out straight like bristles. Next, the male will lower his head and shake it from side to side. Paul unromantically calls this a retching pose, um, but I think it looks more like the male is bowing to the female. The female will show interest by walking towards the male, who immediately takes the hint and tries to mount. The female, though, might play hard to get um, with a little running away, um, but once the male catches up with her, it's down to business. He will put a foot on her back and push her into the prone position. He then mounts and gently nibbles on the feathers of the nape of her neck until after a whopping 15 seconds, the deed is done. And that's actually kind of long in the bird world, to be honest. <laughs> If you want to see a detailed diagram of the full mating ritual, um, it's uh, in the paper that Paul Johnsgard published of this account. And I don't know if he drew these drawings, but the, it's a really good diagram that shows the whole process. And you can find it on the Dirty Bird Podcast Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit page. And after this whole elaborate mating process, the male's pretty much done from nest building and child rearing. The female American bittern will build her nest uh, all on her own and raise the children all on her own. She builds her nest within stands of tall marsh grass or cattails, using dead stems to form a very basic nest and lining the inside with dried grass. Occasionally the female will nest on dry ground, but only when there's lots of brush and shrubs around it to provide cover. The nest is usually built on dead grass or cattails, making it a little conspicuous at first, but as new shoots grow around the nest, it quickly becomes hidden by new green growth. The mama American bittern will lay around five eggs, usually one each day, and immediately begin incubating them, only leaving the nest for food or if she's flushed from it. After about 24 days, the first chicks emerge. 
and these chicks are feisty. One birder I read said every time he approached the nest, the chicks would hiss, buzz, and snap their mandibles at him. Within 11 days, the chicks are strong enough to walk and will go hide in the cattails if the nest is approached. And by 14 days, the chicks are ready to leave the nest entirely. 14 days is pretty quick for birds of this size um, to be totally ready to go out on their own. Um, I suspect that the mama bittern still helps to care for her little teenage bittern young for at least another week or two, but I really couldn't find evidence of this. I think they kind of just scatter into the marsh and it's really hard to keep track of them. So let's talk about the least bittern now. When it comes to nest building, they prefer to use clumps of old vegetation as a foundation. This vegetation can come from a nest from the previous year or from the nest of another bird, like the yellow-headed blackbird, marsh wren, or white-crowned pigeon. Least bitterns also like a bit of a waterbed. They prefer the nest to be built over water, and are even fine with the nest being a bit soggy if the weight of the parents and young cause it to dip a couple inches into the water below. Fluctuations in water level can have a big effect on least bitter nesting. While I didn't find any evidence that parents would completely abandon nests that they had like already formed and laid eggs in if they suddenly found dry land underneath them, they certainly will not build a nest on top of dry lands. And studies have shown that least bitter nest sites dramatically decrease in number around a lake or pond whose water level has lowered from one year to the next. While least bitterns aren't colony nesters, you know, the way like blackbirds, grackle, spoonbills are that all kind of nest together in the same area on purpose, um, they are sometimes known to nest in pretty close vicinity, especially in areas where their population density is high. One study I found from Magnolia Gardens, South Carolina, actually found an association between boat-tailed grackles and least bittern nests. I did an episode on boat-tailed grackles, check it out, uh, but these birds like to nest in the upper parts of cattail plants and form big harems ruled by just a few males. Least bitterns, at least in this study area, seem to prefer nesting within boat-tailed grackle colonies, and since they occupy the lower part of the cattail plant for their nests, the two species seem to work together pretty well. The grackles are especially helpful because they'll mob any avian predators like hawks or falcons that venture too close to the colony. So like the so like the least bitterns are pretty much taking advantage of a free neighborhood watch. When least bitterns locate a good spot for them to build their nest, the males will do most of the nest building, usually mainly with sticks he finds close by. The sticks are arranged in a spoken wheel pattern. He will also pull down vegetation that's nearby to create a canopy that helps conceal the nest. The male and female will actually use the nest to mate in too. This is different from most other bittern species who, you know, just do it by the pond or wherever. But the least bittern, you know, they, they like to have their little home and their little bed to mate in. Least bittern foreplay involves the male caressing the female shoulder feathers with his beak. Aw, that's much nicer than the American bittern just kind of pushing the female down. Um, after mating and her eggs now fertilized, the female will lay one per day until she has a clutch size of two to six. Both the male and female incubate the eggs and young. If a nest is approached while a least bittern is incubating their eggs, they will adopt a fierce defensive posture, standing tall with the bill pointed and crown feathers erect. I saw a picture of this, and I know that the least bittern female in this thinks that she's looking very fierce and scary, but with her little beady yellow eyes and raised crown feathers, she looks just like a Muppet. 
Males and females also adopt a similar posture when switching places on the nest, and perform a nest-changing ritual that can last as long as 10 minutes. One weird behavior that researchers have noticed leaf spinners perform on the nest is jabbing. Um, basically, they will stab at the bottom of the nest, especially when the eggs are close to hatching. One hypothesis for why they do this is to create holes in the nest for the baby bird poop to flow out of, or maybe increase ventilation of the nest. I did find one sad account where a female presumably died, and the male was left alone to incubate the nest. While he tried his hardest, he just wasn't good enough and ended up abandoning the nest after the eggs began to rot. After about 17 days of incubation, the eggs hatch. Young are fed by regurgitation, and the vomit stimulus in the adults seems to be triggered by the young bitterns biting onto the bill of the adult. So basically, when adults come to the nest, the young bitterns will kind of gently bite onto the bell of the adult, and this will tell them that, hey, I'm ready for you to barf that up for me. Frog legs appear to be a particularly popular item that the adults feed the young. The birds start to become independent pretty fast. Within six to nine days, they are hopping out of the nest and trying to hunt on their own, but often they clumsily fall into the water. And while adventurous, they will still return to the nest, though, for feedings from their parents. And much different from the American bitterns that kind of just scurry off after 14 days, these juveniles will remain in the vicinity of the nest for up to a month after hatching. So, so far we've seen with bitterns, I mean, they develop pretty fast. And actually, the least bitterns have such a rapid development that sometimes they can double brood and raise two batches of young in a season. So that's bittern breeding, folks. I always love hearing about the mating rituals. Um, I would love to see the American bittern snow white patch one day. That's something I have never seen. And um, I'll have to pay more attention to marshes, you know, like these little bittern nests are probably so well hidden, but I would love to see a little baby bittern. Well, let's move on to giving life to taking it away, and we'll talk about predators, parasites, and mortality of bitterns. Like most birds, winter is really the big killer. Most deaths of radio-tracked American bitterns seem to occur while they were on their wintering grounds. But they are definitely prey for some animals, too. Crows, blue jays, and blackbirds are known to steal least bittern eggs. Least bitterns seem to return the favor, though. Um, they are known to steal eggs and young from yellow-headed blackbirds. But really, kind of the big threat for bittern eggs and babies is nest instability. A study of least bittern nests in a managed wetland in South Carolina found that out of 573 bittern eggs lost over the course of a seven-year study, 11% of those were due to nests being knocked down by storms or clumsy alligators. And don't get mad at these alligators, they're actually pretty helpful because they keep away mammalian predators like raccoons um, from raiding the nests. But these alligators do little to stop predators like common moorhens and yellow rat snakes that are observed preying on least bittern nests. Common moorheads and yellow rat snakes appear to be mortal enemies of least bitterns, and least bittern parents will mob them if they approach too close to a nest. Hawks and turtles have been observed killing and eating adult least bitterns. 
Another thing that hurts these birds is toxins. Bitterns eat a wide variety of critters and can accumulate levels of toxins in their bodies. Chemicals such as DDT, mercury, or insecticide might be present just a tiny amount in like one individual minnow, but if you eat a hundred of them, it begins to add up. I found a study that found high levels of insecticide called dieldrin in least bittern eggs in Crawley, Louisiana. These bitterns happen to be nesting in a rice field whose seeds have been treated with insecticides. While bitterns weren't eating the seeds, this is an example of how easily a toxin at one level of the food chain can make its way up. Because obviously probably the insects that, or maybe some little fish that were eating the rice, they got the toxin and then the bitterns picked it up from them. And parasites. It wouldn't be Dirty Bird Podcast if I didn't mention some dirty, gross parasite. <laughs> um, bitterns have the typical wormy blend of tapeworms, roundworms, and nematodes that most fish-eating birds acquire. My kingfisher and blue heron episode, I talk a lot about those. But one parasite that I want to especially point out is called Prostogonimus folliculus, which appears to be specific to the least bittern. It likes to hang out in the cloaca, basically that all-in-one hole that birds use to pee, poop, and have sex. So, I guess it's cool that you have your own parasite, least bittern. Sorry that it's in your butthole. <laughs> the American bittern population sits at around 3 million, while the least bittern is much less. It's only around 130,000. Populations for American bitterns are declining, while least bitterns are somewhat more stable. However, since both these birds are very reclusive, they are difficult to study. Um, and a major reason for their decline is the destruction of wetlands. Just creating a small pond or wetland around a lake is not enough for these birds. Studies have found that least burden populations are most robust in large, unbroken wetlands. Somewhat interestingly, the more trees and shrubs that are present, the less least bitterns there will be. This is thought to be because trees and shrubs provide habitat for mammalian and avian predators that can easily come in and kill some bitterns. So really, especially for the least bittern, having these large areas of wetlands with the nice deep water and the reeds poking up from them that probably take, you know, years and years to grow is the perfect thing for them because nothing is going to come out there and mess with them. Both these birds were historically hunted by humans their slow flight and habit of freezing and acting like a reed when confronted made them particularly easy to shoot. John James Audubon noted that the American bittern was common in the markets of New Orleans, where people bought it to make gumbo. John James Audubon noted that the American bittern was common in the markets of New Orleans as kind of a lower-grade meat, but, you know, good enough to make gumbo with. I did read that both these bitterns didn't go down without a fight, though, when wounded, they would peck and claw fiercely, sometimes causing severe wounds. Well, folks, we've nearly reached the bitter end of the show today. Ah. <laughs> um, I advise only proceeding if you're a true bird nerd. Um, I'm about to talk about bittern evolution and then wrap up describing Corey's bittern. I'll be fine if you check out now. Just leave me a review, you know. <laughs> um, all right, so bittern evolution. Bitterns are in the heron family called Ardeidae which first formed around 51 million years ago. 
Check out my Great Blue Heron episode to learn more about how the family formed, but for all purposes, I'm going to start around 35 million years ago when the branch of the Ardeidae tree that would form the bittern split off. Interestingly, one of the first birds to form off the branch was the zigzag heron. Yes, that's right. The zigzag heron is actually more closely related to the bitterns. It's a very primitive and ancient heron of South America that evolved around 30 million years ago. So it's kind of like a living fossil, really. Like the development of other egrets and herons, bitterns started out small and the big body size of the American bittern came later. All the early branches of the bittern tree are small-bodied bitterns with names such as the dwarf bittern, the little bittern, and of course our tiny least bittern, which emerged around 17.7 million years ago. Big body size in bitterns appears to be a pretty recent evolutionary feature, starting around 12 million years ago with the Australasian bittern and the great bittern. The American bittern is actually the youngest species in the bittern tree, separating from the very similar pinnated bittern of South America around 6.2 million years ago. These big-bodied bitterns make up the genus Botaurus, while the smaller bitterns, including our least bittern, are within the older genus Ixobrychus. The fossil record also sheds some insights into the development of bitterns. The oldest fossil of a bittern I could find came from Otago on the South Island of New Zealand from a rock formation dating from the early Miocene around 16 to 19 million years ago. If you remember from my recent MOA episode, this is also around the time the first MOA pop up in the fossil record, so this prehistoric bittern was hanging out alongside these awesome flightless birds. Paleontologists found the tarsometatarsus, the elongated ankle bone that makes up the majority of the legs we see on birds, and also a coracoid, a bone that forms the shoulder in birds. This bittern was dubbed Pikaihio Bartley, which combines the Maori words pai, a prefix for small or baby birds, and kaihio for fishermen. Bartley is named for J.A. Sandy Bartle, curator for birds at the National Museum of New Zealand, who passed away in 2009. I wonder if Les McPherson knew him. Also, Les, I'm sorry for my terrible Maori pronunciations of words. <laughs> um, this bittern, though, was much smaller than the big-bodied Botaris bitterns, but it was actually larger than our modern-day small bitterns of the genus Ixobrychus. So this intermediately-sized bittern of New Zealand shows how historically widespread and diverse the bittern family has been. One fossil that demonstrates a gradual increase in size of our Botaris bitterns comes from the Itchtuckney River in Columbia County, Florida. This coracoid bone dates from the late Pleistocene, a period that ranges from 100,000 to 11,000 years ago. While the bone was nearly identical to that of the modern-day American bittern, it differs in one key way, size. Dubbed Botaurus columbiana, it was slightly smaller than our modern-day American bittern, but this prehistoric bittern was on the leading edge of bittern body size and would go on to produce larger and larger offspring, eventually resulting in our modern-day big-bodied American bittern. One last wrinkle in bitterns revolves around an interesting color morph of the least bittern dubbed Cory's bittern. Cory's bittern is a darker-colored version of the least bittern, that was first shot and described by Charles B. Corey in the marshes of Lake Okeechobee, Florida. Instead of that nice navy blue back of the male least bittern, 
Koi's bittern's back and crown are black. Its sides and underbelly are also covered in a rich, dark brown plumage that kind of reminds me of mahogany. The crisp white lines that normally accent least bitterns are also absent on Cory's bittern, although it's been known to have random patches of unpigmented feathers. Matching the rest of its body, its bill is also black, unlike the yellow bill of the average least bittern. This aberrant coloration looks so different, in fact, that it was first described in 1885 as a separate species. Ever since the first description, people have been arguing about Cory's bittern. Is it its own species? Is it a color morph? Or is it just demonstrating color variation? The first question seems to be a resounding no. In 1923, the American Ornithologist Union took Cory's bittern off its species list. However, the question about whether Cory's bittern is an actual color morph still raged. To be a true color morph, Cory's bittern would have to be expressing inherited genes for its coloration, similar to how you might inherit your parents' eye color. Our genetic data for testing this is really limited. Um, although there was a huge craze in collecting the rare Cory's bittern at the turn of the century, there are only 38 known specimens. This means Cory's bittern was extremely rare even before it was further reduced through hunting. Many of the collected specimens centered around the Great Lakes region, and the marshes they were collected from have now been destroyed. However, Cory's bittern's dark plumage could have just been a result of a mutation, similar to leucism, also known as partial albinism, seen in many bird species. You might notice like some birds at your feeder um, or pigeons in the city have little white patches on them. This is due to leucism. If you look closely at accounts describing Cory's bitterns, there are actually no two that are exactly the same. There's a lot of variation from bird to bird about where the white patches are, just how dark the back is. This has led some researchers to believe Cory's bittern is more of an idea than an actual bird. The least bittern was like a shiny Pokemon or a misprinted baseball card that once birders of the late 1800s knew was out there they just had to have. This led to a cognitive bias where any dark-colored bittern must be a Cory's bittern, rather than just a variation on the plumage. I know I may be splitting feathers here, but it's just an interesting point on how our minds just compartmentalize things. Regardless of what exactly it is, Cory's bittern does still exist out there in the wild for an observant and diligent birder to find. There's only been a handful of credible sightings since the 1950s. Um, they occurred in Toronto, Oklahoma, Florida, and most recently in Brazil. In fact, that sighting in Brazil in 2010 was actually recorded and uploaded to YouTube, and you can go see a video of Corey's Bittern just by searching for it on there. So while this color morph is super rare, it can really pop up anywhere um, within the least Bittern's range. So there's a chance you might see it and become semi-famous in the birding community. Just remember, if you see it and become famous, tell them who sent you, Dory Bird Podcast. <laughs> Alright, so that's all I have on least bitterns. But before I go, I want to read that awesome review that Chelsea wrote me. So Chelsea writes, Bird Nerd. That is now something I would have to call myself after listening to several of these podcasts. Also from Elkins, West Virginia, I would have been one of the women of Walmart in search of the right feed for my feeder. <laughs> that's reference to a story I tell in my bird seed episode. Honestly, I never thought I would be the kind of person looking forward to talking about birds, but here we are. Shrug emoji. Thanks to my partner, Jen, who turned me on to all of this birding. I now use the Dirty Bird to share and grow my knowledge base. 
I just keep coming back for more. Again, who knew? Thanks, John, and all your fantastic guests that make the podcast what it is. It's awesome to build up your own little backyard bungalow with a little guidance from the Dirty Bird. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Contact me for some stickers. And y'all, write some reviews, share something about Dirty Bird Podcast, and I'll send you some stickers too. Okay, folks, you know the drill. Stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. in the back and I like the New York Mets and my cow